Like he said, my name is Luke Rakestraw, and uh, it's just a privilege to get to be up here tonight. I'm really thankful that Marshall lets people that have no clue what they're doing get up here and get to speak. Um, so, uh, like Marshall said last week, our church, along with the rest of the, uh, the Christian world, celebrated Easter. Um, we celebrated the reality that our God is not dead, but alive, that he has risen. And it can be easy for us now to kind of move past that. There's such a big buildup to Easter. Like anything else, there's a big buildup. Um, we just, we just, we have it and then we move on. Um, and so we kind of did all the pictures. We dressed up. We did the Easter egg hunts. We did the big service. And now it's just time to move past Easter. Um, Easter was last week. And I really want to help us tonight not do that. Um, I really want to help us tonight not move past Easter so quickly. Um, because if Easter is true, and I believe that it is because Christ is risen from the dead. Then Easter is not just last Sunday, but it's every Sunday. Um, the events of Easter that we celebrated last week, we should be celebrating them every week in our, in our lives. And so if you have your Bible or it's on page 8 of uh, the bulletin in the order of worship at the bottom, read with me Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11. And this is the words of the Apostle Paul. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And these next two verses are really what I want to hit on tonight. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let me pray. Father, uh, I pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word tonight, that you would open our hearts to the living hope that we do have in Christ Jesus that you'd use the power of your spirit and the power of your words to help us know you and in knowing you, the power of your resurrection. It is in your name we pray. Amen. So contrary to popular belief, uh, life is not something that just happens. It doesn't just come out of nowhere, out of thin air. Um, more often than not, in most cases, life's, life is first something that happens to you. What has been done to you in this life will often become what, what we end up doing and end up becoming what our lives end up being made of. For example, the, the kind of the old sayings that hurt people end up hurting people or rejected people end up therefore rejecting people or people that are controlled in this life end up then controlling people. What happens to you ends up working through you to other people. But the good news is the opposite is also true. Something positive can happen to you in your life. Something positive can happen to you that then you end up becoming. So yes, hurt people hurt people, of course, but forgiven people end up being able to forgive others. Rejected people often reject others, but loved people end up being able to love others. And resurrected people end up being able to live, and because they now live, they can help other people live. And that's what Easter is really all about, it is the great reminder that Christianity is not merely just good advice about what you should or should not do, but it is primarily good news about something that has been done on your behalf. 
that our God has become a man, that our God has died and rose, making everything he said true. And because of that, because of that resurrection, now everything has changed about you and about our world. And so two things from this passage that I want us to think about tonight in light of what the resurrection means. The resurrection first changes the way you live. And second, the, resur- the resurrection changes why you live. So first, the resurrection changes the way you live. And you see it in verse 10. Paul's new pattern of living is this, that he may know him and the power of his resurrection. What does it look like to know Christ? What does it look like to know the power of his resurrection? You see it. And he may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. The new pattern for Paul is that he goes from death to resurrection. Now we're jumping right into the middle of this letter, um, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, which is always dangerous because it it, we, we don't understand the context. We don't understand the bigger story of what's going on. So it might be helpful to understand a little background about what's going on at the church during that time. And there's a pattern going on at this church, and this church is actually one of the most healthy in the New Testament. They have a reputation of being a very joyful people, being a very united people. But there's one thing that Paul wants them to look out for, and it's this. There is a false teaching going on in the church that says, in order for you to really be one of us, in order for you to really be a Christian, in order for us to accept you, you must be circumcised. And that is the pattern that's going on from the false teaching circumcision, then you be good, you be one of us, you be saved. And that's still the basic pattern with which our world offers us. Um, I know that no one one is saying to you, if you would just get circumcised, then you'd be good to go. But you understand what I'm saying here. The basic pattern of our world is, if you would just do X, Y, and Z, then you'd be accepted, then you'd be loved, then you'd be valuable, you'd be worth living for. If you just achieve this success, if you just had this stuff, if you just gained this status, then others would finally accept you, love you, and you'd be one of us. And so we're constantly bombarded with this message, this way of living, this pattern, that will be loved more when we make ourselves better. When we make ourselves more attractive, we'll be accepted by more people. And we can even apply that not just horizontally to other people, but vertically to God. If I just performed enough, if I just had the, the better moral record, then maybe God would finally accept, approve of me. And this is the pattern of the world. This is what is going on in, in Philippians, and it's going on still today. And it's the shape of this ladder that we're all constantly in. That you're forced to keep going up and up and up on this ladder of life. And if you don't keep going up and up and up, something's desperately wrong with you. And Paul is saying in this passage that he used to live this way. But something has happened. In verse 7, he says, I used to live this way, but whatever gain I then had, I now count as loss. Indeed, I count everything as loss now. So Paul lived the religious lifestyle. He was better than a lot of people at what he did. By his heritage, he was a better person. By his actions, he performed better. But he's saying that those things that I had, that ladder that I was climbing... I count it as lost now because something has happened in his life. Verse 9, verse 8. He now knows Christ Jesus is Lord, and for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, because now he is found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but now it comes through faith in Christ. So Paul's worth, his acceptance, his righteousness, he's trying to show is not in circumcision, 
It's not in these outward actions. It's not in the ladder of life that we constantly live, but it's actually based on Christ's work, his performance, his actions. And therefore, we're accepted, not on the basis of what we do, but on the basis of what Christ has done. And his life has been changed. And so Paul is saying here, he doesn't have to live by this pattern of the ladder anymore, constantly trying to go up and up and up. He now lives by another pattern that one author has called the J-curve. That the Christian life, that the life in Christ is not a ladder, but it's actually a J. It's a J of we enter into the death like Christ died, and then we enter into his resurrection like Christ raised. By Christ's death and resurrection, he not only saves us, but he, he, he presents a new model and new way of living. In verse 10, he gets to that, that I've already said, that he may know him in the power of his resurrection, how? By going down, sharing in his, his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul doesn't have to go up and up and up and more. He can go down. And that's because Christ changes not just your life, but your way of life. Think back to what Jesus did. Jesus did not try to take control, but he gave it up. Jesus didn't come for power like Marshall preached two weeks ago. People kept trying to get him to take power. Jesus wouldn't do it. He came to suffer on the behalf of others. Jesus' famous statement in Mark that he didn't come to be served, but to actually serve. And Jesus didn't try to save himself, even though people were crying to him on the cross, save yourself. But he died to save us. He knew that in saving himself, he would not save us. And in his dying, he rose, showing us that true life now comes through death. And so Jesus did not go up the ladder. He actually came down the ladder. And by doing so, reshaped our pattern of life. It is no longer this constant treadmill of having to do more and more and more but he reshaped the, the way of life into a J, death and resurrection. So what, what do I mean by this? What, what does this actually look like? A couple years ago, a pastor by the name of Sandy Wilson, um, he was a pastor in Memphis for a long time. Um, he came and did a conference um, at um, our church at Hope and our uh, mother church, Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. Um, he did a conference on family, singleness, marriage, around those ideas. And on Friday night, he gave his marriage talk. And during that talk, he shared this story of this couple that had been married for 25 years, um, but they were stuck. Um, even though they'd been married for so long, they just couldn't seem to figure things out. And so they, they had kind of climbed the ladder, and the ladder had, had, had led them to a place of being stuck in. So they came in for counseling, wouldn't know what to do. And he started asking them questions, and he said he immediately knew the problem that was going on. So he asked the wife to leave, and he wanted to talk to the husband privately. And here's a question they asked the husband that I think can be re really revealing for us tonight. Sandy asked the, the, the woman's husband, when was the last time the cross of Christ changed the way you treated your wife? When was the last time that what Christ did for you in his death and resurrection changed the way you actually live for other people? So he was trying to get to this idea that Jesus Christ is not just for us, but now lives in us. And he said the guy just had a blank stare on his face. Because he said there was not one time in his marriage where he could think back and see how Jesus' death and resurrection had affected his life. Jesus for him had not become Jesus in him. Because his life was just ultimately about him. It wasn't about the J-curve. It wasn't about that life actually comes through death. 
So what about you? What is your way of life? When you think about your life, what is its overarching shape? Is it shaped like a ladder? Like what, what Paul is preaching against here, where you have to constantly go up and up, whether that be academically, where you have to constantly be making the next GPA to fill out the resume to get the job. You have to keep going up and up socially, that your friends are just never enough. You have to be in the right groups of people. You have to go up and up economically, that there's, there's just not enough material things in this world to satisfy you. You have to keep having more and more, keep up with the people around you. What is the shape of your life? Is it a ladder or is it the J-curve? Where suffering is no longer a penalty for you, but it's actually the path. Where suffering can actually lead to triumph in your life, where the sorrows of this world can actually be taken down into joy, and death for you can actually lead to resurrection. See, the J-curve says you don't have to forget your sins and suffering, deny that they are there. If you live by the latter, you have to forget your sins and your suffering because they slow you down. The J-curve says you don't have to forget them anymore. The J-curve says you don't have to fear them anymore. You don't have to fear the sins and suffering of this world. Despairing that life is only going to get worse and worse for you. And you don't have to fix them. You don't have to spend all your time trying to figure out, how am I going to get out of this thing? How am I going to get away from this suffering? How am I going to fix this sin problem in my life? If your life is a ladder, you do. But if your life is in Christ and it's a J, and the death and the resurrection of Christians gives you the freedom to face them. The death and resurrection of Christ gives you the freedom to actually face your sin, to face your suffering, and to die to self in order to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. So that's what the resurrection does in us. How do you apply the resurrection like Marshall said, like the Heidelberg Catechism just said that we, we said out loud? It changes something in you. It's not just something that's done for you outside of you, but it actually works itself down into the deepest parts of your life. And so that's what the resurrection does in us. It changes our way of life because the resurrection does not just change the way of your life, but it changes the why. Of your Look at verse 11. The resurrection changes the why of your life. It's possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So he started out in verse 10 by saying what Christ has done is led him to he, that he may know him. So he's saying that I may know. And then he starts out verse 11 again with that, that, that word. That he may know that ultimately, by any means possibly, may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Christ died for him that he may do this. He is building to his ultimate goal in life. And he says he's willing to do any means possible to have it. Paul does everything that he does, every, every breath he takes is for this goal, that he may attain this, that this is his hope, his desire. And what's that desire? What's that hope? What's he trying to attain? Paul says it's the resurrection from the dead. Now, if I were to do a poll after the service and, and were to ask you um, why you do the things you do, if I were to ask you, hey, what gets you up in the morning? Um, hey, why do you work this job instead of that job? Hey, what's your kind of family mission? What's your family goal? Hey, why do you do that, that hobby instead of the other ones? Why do you, we have a lot of college students here tonight going into finals. Why, why, do, you, why do you do your classes? Why do you do that major? I would will, I'd be willing to bet everything that your first response would not be resurrection from the dead. In fact, if you said that to me, I would, I would think you're pretty strange. <laughs> We don't think like this. this is not our goal. Our goals are a lot more just simple. 
So I think we have our work cut out for us to really understand what Paul means here. Because if Paul says, everything I do is for the resurrection of the dead, it must really matter. And so what does this mean? We, we just read it in the Heidelberg Catechism, where it says that the, the, one of the reasons that Christ raised from the dead is for our blessed resurrection. That we have this hope that we are going to rise one day, not just soul, but body. And so most people, if you kind of grow up around church, you see heaven as the ultimate goal for things. Or in another, another realm, you just kind of settle for the things of this world. So you have the goal of, I'm going to, my goal is just to get to heaven. Or my goal is just to live my best life now on, the, on this earth. And I would say to both of those, heaven is very important. This world is very important. But actually, it's not the end of all things biblically. Heaven is actually an in-between. It is where Christians go when they die, but it's not where they'll be forever. Here's what John says in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. The first heaven and first earth have passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city coming down out of heaven from God. So heaven is, heaven is not where we're going, but heaven is actually what's coming to us. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And so what is promised for us, and what Paul is pointing to in this passage, is that God will ultimately come to make all things new, including our new resurrected bodies within God's new world. Say it another way. God's plan is not to abandon this world, the world which he said was very good in Genesis 1. Rather, he intends to remake it. And when he does that, he will raise all his people to new body life to live in it. And that is the promise of the gospel. That he's not coming to abandon the world, but actually to make the world new and to make you new with it. And so the resurrection of the dead, what Paul is talking about here, means that God does not just care about redeeming your soul, like Marshall said. He actually cares about redeeming the whole of it all. That's what makes your work really important. That's what makes all five of these people that had different jobs and different vocations. That's what makes the kingdom work really important because God's not just redeeming individual souls, but he's redeeming everything. And so what does that mean for us? That, that big, lofty resurrection from the dead, the idea that God is not just redeeming souls, but he's redeeming everything? What, what has that got to do with me and you right now on a Sunday afternoon in Lexington, Kentucky? Well, follow Paul's thinking. He's saying if Christ rolls, rose in soul and body, then one day you will rise in soul and body. Because Christ raised, you raised. Christ wasn't just some soul walking around, but he had a physical body. He ate breakfast like we, like we listened to last week. He had, his, his disciples touched him and spoke to him. So if Christ rose in soul and body, you will rise in soul and body. Therefore, Paul makes it his goal to aim for the resurrection of all things, physical and spiritual, soul and body. Which means that our ultimate hope is not just in escaping this world or only living for this world, but actually bringing heaven to this world. That's what Paul is saying here. He's following in the line of the Lord's Prayer when Jesus prays, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is saying your kingdom on heaven needs to come to earth, and that's going to happen through the resurrection of his people. In this way, Christians are now signposts to the future reality, meaning that we point to a greater reality that's coming. And so we should be appetizers that point the way to now the main meal later. And I'll give you an example of how this works itself out. 
my wife, Celeste, like Marshall said, is eight and a half months pregnant. Thankfully, she's, she's still pregnant. She's not going to labor right now. Um, the number one question we have been getting recently, especially as this gets closer and closer and closer, is are you ready for this new baby? Which, of course, as a parent, you're like, yeah, we're ready. But inside, you're like, no, no, we're not ready at all. <laughs> we're scared out of our minds. Uh, because how do you get ready for a new creature coming into the world? Uh, how do you do that? There's no, you can read all the books, you can listen to all the things, but there's no way to possibly get ready for this new reality to happen. But even though we can't possibly get ready for it, we have to align our present as much as possible with what we know about the future. So even though we can't possibly get ready completely, we've redone the nursery. We've bought our new boy clothes. We've got him diapers. We've talked to friends about what it's like to raise a boy because all we know is about how to raise a girl or how to transition from one child to two children. If anybody has any advice on that, I'd love to keep that dialogue going. We've even tried to prepare our dog, who seems to have a harder time with this transition than our two-year-old. <laughs> and we know that out of all this preparation, it's not going to be the same when he arrives, but we're doing everything possible in the present to align ourselves with what we know about the future. And that's what Paul is saying in this passage. That even though we don't really know what the resurrection of the dead is going to look like, we know Christ is risen, we know he had a physical body, we know that God cares about all things, So we know some things, but we have to align our present with what we believe about our future. So the future, because Christ was resurrected, will be resurrected. So in the present, how do you live now? You practice that resurrection. You bring a glimpse of heaven on earth today. A biblical scholar, a Pauline scholar, puts it a lot better than I do. So I'm going to read his words. He says, the point of the resurrection is that the present bodily life is not valueless just because it will die. Your body is not pointless just because it will die. What you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. So what you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sowing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, all will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly or to make your life a little more bearable until the day when we leave it behind altogether. They are all part of what it means to live out the resurrection. In other words, precisely because the ultimate goal is the redemption of the whole creation, our calling is to live in our bodies now in a way which anticipates the life we shall live then. So what are we to do in the present? We're to live like the resurrection is happening. So, Here's what I want to do for final application. I want you to start imagining what resurrection would look like, not only in your life, but through your life. Because if the central event of all history really is the death and resurrection of Christ, and if the concluding event of all history, the consummation of everything, is the new heavens and the new earth with the resurrection bodies with Christ, where do you need to line up your life with that reality? Where do you need to line up your world with that reality? And I want you to know, if you haven't been going here a while, or if you have been going here a while, you have a pastor and marshal and leaders that desperately care about this happening. They want this for you, and they want this for the city. This is Marshall and Justin's vision for downtown, hence the name Hope Presbyterian Church, not Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. (laughs) Marshall's vision for our church is that we would be a people and a place 
that practices the resurrection, that we provide actually a living hope for our neighborhood. And so here's how this works practically. First, you start thinking, what is my life like right now? What is my world like right now? Then you start thinking, I wonder what heaven is like in this area. And then you say, I wonder how I can die to myself so that the power of Christ and the power of his resurrection can be extended into these areas. I'll give you three areas in downtown specifically and then kind of get your mind going. Take loneliness. We have an absolute loneliness epidemic in our culture. It is by far the leading driver of mental illness. It is a leading driver of depression and anxiety. I see this every day on UK's campus. That's our world. What's God's world like? Well, we know that God created us to be in relationship with each other, not in isolation from each other. So how can I align my life in the power of the resurrection to bring heaven to earth and helping bring people together, not further isolate them? People are going to be together in the new heavens, new earth. What are we waiting for now? That's loneliness. Take, take the least of these. God, we know that God created us to love each other, not just to use each other. Not to exploit others, to leave them with the least so that we can have the most. And our city is filled with those that have been exploited racially because of the color of their skin, sexually, financially. We know that people are being used instead of being loved. And that's not how God attended it. So how can I align my life and the power of the resurrection to actually love people and not just use them? People are not going to be exploited in the new heavens, new earth. Why are they being exploited now? Take the last one. Think about the lost people in our city. There's a lot, a lot of people that don't know Jesus. They don't know they have a living Savior. They don't know they have a living hope that brings meaning to suffering. And God created us to know Him. And so how can I align my life, my world, to the power of the resurrection in order to help people know their living Savior and their living hope. And I would say, keep imagining things and take it as far as the resurrection will take you. Because you see, there's nothing that the resurrection can't bring life to. Jesus is not some memory or some metaphor that we try to hold on to to try to make our lives happier. He's not just some inspiring person from the past that died a noble death, and now we just need to emulate him to make our lives feel better. He is not some idea, some pie-in-the-sky dream about the way things could be, possibly. Uh, Jesus is the way things are. And Jesus is the way things will be. And he is our living Savior in whom we now have a living hope. And I pray that we align our lives with that reality and be resurrection people now because of it. Let me pray. Father, we need your help. We need help knowing you and the power of your resurrection. We need you to help us know you're our Savior. And not just our Savior, but our living Savior that's with us right now. And we need your help knowing that you're our hope, our living hope, that brings meaning to our suffering. And I pray that your, your resurrection would change us. And that it would change downtown. It would change hope. And that we would not be hope in name alone. That the hope of Christ would live and dwell here. It's your name I pray. Amen.